Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African American Wellness Project. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and a past president of the National Medical Association. We've got a special show for you tonight. I am excited, a little bit excited, I guess. <laughs> I'm a little bit you know, taken aback by tonight's show because we're going to be talking about something that's a little bit uncomfortable for men to talk about, and that is erectile dysfunction. So you don't want to miss tonight's guest about that. We also have an update with um, a friend of the show that's been on multiple times, Dr. Oliver Brooks, and he's going to give us the latest on the Delta variant with COVID and kind of give us some updates on where we are with our fight against COVID-19. We were winning at one point, but it seems like COVID is coming back with a vengeance. And so we've got to be very, very careful about what is going on with that particular virus, not not just here in the United States, but all over the world as the Olympics are set to start later this month. Uh, But you know, as before we begin our discussion tonight we got a couple of things we want you to do and one of the things we want you to do is to give us a shout out let us know where you're watching from that means drop it in the comments tell us where you're watching from let us know how you're doing also if you hear some content if you know a friend that would like to that needs to hear this this content make sure you tag them and share it with your friends like the show let us know what you're doing and how you're doing because that is always important to us uh finally i want to let you know this show is interactive i know that's a big word but that means you answer you ask the questions and we will answer them and so make sure that if you've got a question you drop it there in the comment section and and we will ask our experts your question uh on the air so you can get the answers that you need so uh, i think i've said all of the housekeeping items there dr lenore how are you doing today sir i'm doing fine i can say i almost forgot what I was doing, I was forgot that I was part of the show, I, you know. But I understand how, how we have to do this, and I appreciate that. No, I'm glad to be back with you this week. I I think it's good that we have a mix of people. Erectile dysfunction uh, is a subject that most men don't want to talk about, uh, and I think, uh, and uh, maybe women as well. Uh, we'll ask Dr. Lang for that question. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Mr. Dean, I think we should uh, talk with um, uh, Dr. Oliver Brooks. He is our resident expert on what's happening with the COVID virus. Uh, there was a, uh, almost a panic here in the Bay Area. Uh, there was an article written that in Marin County, 19 people were admitted to the intensive care unit. Uh, 18 of them had been vaccinated. And then they had to, they had, and that went on for 24 hours, and then that had to be corrected. Uh, and so that, along with what's happening with, with the J&J vaccine, what's going on in terms of the variants, I think there's just enough. I know people are tired of talking about um, the COVID virus. Well, I want to mention a few statistics before your interview. Uh, 99.5% of the people that die from COVID in this country are unvaccinated. That's the first thing. The second thing, in San Francisco, for every 1,000 white people who have the COVID virus infection, two people die. Uh, For every 1,000 black people who have the infection, 15 people die. And so consequently, I'm tired, Mr. Dean. I know we've disagreed uh, somewhat on this point. But I'm tired of hearing people telling me that we can't tell people it's not okay to be vaccinated, that we should listen and that we, we should be more considerate, more tolerant. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not in that particular position. My feeling is that if you're not vaccinated, you're danger to yourself, you're danger to your family, you're danger to your friends. Uh, it's a, I think it's a very selfish attitude. And I don't think that with all the statistics that are out there that you can justify that particular position. But more and more, every time I talk to younger people, especially, they are not vaccinated. Uh, And I just don't think that that's okay. Uh, And people may disagree with that, and probably several people do. But I don't think it's okay not to be vaccinated. Not one one, one out of my being that believes that, and no need of me saying it. Well, I, I definitely agree with your, your sentiment. I, th- I think the only thing we disagree on is that um, 
I, I do think people have have the freedom to make a decision. Now, I might disagree with their decision, but I do want to allow them that space and that freedom to make a decision. Would you have every right to have a strong opinion about their decision? If they're making a decision not to not to be vaccinated, then you have every right to make a, have an opinion about that decision. That is kind of the premise of this country in saying that that we have freedom to you know to choose and freedom to make those decisions. We also have freedom to have an opinion about <laughs> those decisions, and so you have a strong opinion about that. I, I will say that, um, uh, shout out to Venus. Uh, I, I will say that we do need to be a little bit, especially the younger people, they need to be a little bit more cautious. And so that's why I'm excited to talk to Dr. Brooks tonight, because this Delta variant is taking out and it's really, really impacting uh, younger people. I just read uh, the other day, yesterday, as a matter of fact, in Mississippi, there were uh, 12 children that were infected with the Delta variant, 10 ended up in the ICU. And these are young children. And so we're not just, um, and younger people are, more and more younger people are being admitted to hospitals around the nation uh, that are contracting the Delta variant. And so we, we see uh, it's been called COVID on steroids and it is proving to be just that because it is now not just affecting the older uh, population, it is affecting younger people as well. And they're finding themselves not as resistant as they once thought they were as, um, you know, uh, invincible as they once thought they were uh, against uh, COVID. They are being hospitalized and, and they're suffering uh, the dire consequences. I will point that your your statistic is right in line with the efficacy rate that was uh, reported for the mRNA vaccinations. And so it is doing exactly what it said. It is meeting the eff efficacy. And so I know people wanted to hear 100%. They wanted to be 100% effective. It, it's not, there's no vaccine that's 100% effective. But when you're talking about 99.5% of the people that are being admitted or that are dying from, the, from uh, COVID are unvaccinated, I think the vaccine is doing its job. So let's bring on Dr. Brooks and hear what he has to say about this particular uh, situation. Uh, Dr. Brooks, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. So I would, I, I want to link both of you in terms of your statements. So you know, Ellis, you're saying that, you know, freedom of choice is an American tradition. Uh, Dr. Lenore Mike is saying, you know, I, I have no tolerance for those that are unvaccinated. Now you made a point. There were children that got admitted to the hospital in Florida. If those children were under 12 years of age, they could not be vaccinated, which means that what Dr. Lenore is saying is that they got it probably from someone who was unvaccinated and there's nothing that those children could have done. So that person, Dr. Lenore would say, was ultimately being selfish is the term I would use. Uh, so if there's a continuum between total freedom of choice and then mandate, I'm, I'm leaning more toward uh, Mike, toward Dr. Lenore. I actually gave a television interview last night that didn't get broadcast because the reporter got assaulted on her way to filing her a report. But I actually stated on there that I think we should consider mandates. I'm somewhat happy it didn't broadcast because I was actually worried about what effect that might have if it got out that, you know, Dr. Bruce, that guy's talking about mandates. That being stated, there are there are mandates where if you have tuberculosis, the county will watch you take your medicines. Uh, you cannot go out. So I think that we're in a public health emergency. People are dying. This Delta variant is spreading. Uh, the rates are doubling, but they're 90 percent lower than the heights. You know, let's say during the, the, the height of the pandemic issue. Uh, and what Dr. North said is accurate. Studying here in Southern California, I think five percent of those that got it uh, Delta that got the Delta variant were uh, vaccinated. Ninety-five percent are unvaccinated. The problem we have is with unvaccinated people. So I, I have to say that that's clear and present information, and they are a clear and present danger. So what do we do? Let me let me go one step further. Yeah, all this discussion is real interesting, but the bottom line is to the bottom line. You need to get vaccinated. You can talk to me about the Delta variant. You can talk to me about everything you want to talk about. Oh, it's only 98% or 58%. The, the emergency use authorization was going to accept the vaccine was 50% effective. Right. Because that's better than 0% effective. And side effects are minimal. You did mention J&J. J&J just came out that they are having uh, some reports of a condition called Guillain-Barre, which is a paralysis Again, the rates, I think, were somewhere around 12 per million. 
So again, if people start talking about that, okay, your chances of getting and dying from COVID are higher than the Guillain-Barre. So my opinion is this. I understand all of this is relevant, but the at the end of the day, the answer is get vaccinated. I, I guess the, the, the ultimate question is, um, why do you think people are still not getting vaccinated? Is it just because of the disinformation out there? Because I know on the more conservative leaning uh, news programs, uh, Fox, uh, OAN, Newsmax, et cetera, Breitbart, et cetera, they have been staunchly anti-vaccination. They have been telling people go back to their lives, They're, that the media is overplaying it, overblowing what's going on. And yet, and still, People are in those predominantly, like Arkansas has now been called the epicenter of the Delta variant. So, and these are highly con, uh, conservative uh, states. So, you know, are, is it just that people are not paying attention to what's happening around them and they're just listening to what they want to hear? Is it more affirmation than information that they're, that they're paying attention to? So I think it's two things. When you look at the majority community, let's say Arkansas, I think it's a political question. Again, understand most of vaccine hesitancy and refusal is an emotional, psychological, and not a scientific response. I think that these people in the majority community feel that they are asserting themselves. No one's going to tell me what to do. If I told him, you know, I, I, I want you to go pick up that $100 bill on the ground, they might say no, just because I asked them to do it. So, a lot of it is on that side is the political. There is some out, some concern out there about side effects of the vaccine. But I think on and that the, the highest rate of refusal of vaccine is white evangelicals. OK. And Republicans. So now for our people, for black people, it's, it's different. What I'm hearing is my vitamins, my working out, my good sleep and my drinking water are going to boost my immune system. Uh, I'm waiting and seeing to see what happens with other people. Uh, and I just don't trust the vaccine. And then some, I think, are complacent. They're just not worried about COVID-19. So there, there are a lot of reasons they're varied, but in the end, none of them have true scientific basis. Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the, the sad thing about what, what happened in the previous administration is everybody became a scientist, right, immediately. Right. And so now we've got all of these Internet scientists that read an article or two and now are trying to refute what's happening. And so that's why I hear in the frustration from you and Dr. Lenore is that, you know, you've dedicated your life to science and medicine and healing and helping others. And then you've got people that have done none of that in that in that learning to be able to understand this and they're just telling you that you're wrong all of a sudden you're wrong in your opinions and so i can see from that perspective how frustrating that can be uh as a physician to say wait a minute i've looked at all the data yes. you haven't looked at a, you looked at an article <laughs> you remember that the lead physician toward the end of the last administration was a dr atlas who i believe was a neurosurgeon yes. uh and then they refuted uh, Anthony Fauci, who is one of the 20 most quoted um, researchers in the world, in the world. And this was before COVID. So in other words, he was a highly respected doctor, one of the highest in the, in the, in the world. And right. they're refuting him. So you're right. It's like, you know, if you remember way back in history, they, the church didn't want you. I'm talking about maybe a couple hundred years ago. Uh, the church uh, did not want you to uh, embrace science. They wanted right. the wrong dogma. So, I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about two or three hundred years ago. Now it's the same concept. We don't want science. We want, we want to deny climate change. We want to deny that this vaccine works. And my thought is it's being done. So you can, if you can convince people of that, you can probably convince them of anything. So it is really sad that this vaccine has become uh, politicized. But in our community, what Dr. Lenore stated, 7.5 times higher rate of hospitalization among our African-Americans. So our focus needs to be right now on our community because the other, com they can kind of afford to, to talk about it the way they're talking about it, be abstract, be political, um, be philosophical. We're dying. We're in the hospital. We, right. we get long COVID. So we have to convince our people that it is in their best interest, it's in the community's best interest to get vaccinated.
Yeah, and and, and it's, it's interesting. Like there was a comment here that says uh, this uh, very talk is why people won't get the vaccine, and I'm like, I don't understand what that means. What that question is, is or what that statement is saying is that are, are they saying is it because you know we're we're speaking more frank? We are. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how much more evidence is needed in order to suggest that the vaccines are safe because there have been over now 350 million doses uh, administered here in the United States with very few um, side effects. You know, we've had some instances right. with, with J&J, a couple of instances with J&J. We've had uh, uh, people that have died. Yes, there have been people that have died that have been fully vaccinated, but it has been, when, when compared to the people that are unvaccinated that have died, it is a minuscule percentage. But if you're going to hold on to that and, and ignore the mountain of evidence to the other side, then there has to be some questions as to why that is. And so if we're questioning you and we're saying, why are you still holding on? Why are you still holding out against vac against getting vaccinated? That's a legitimate question, not something that we're trying to insult your intelligence or trying to say, we're just trying to ask you a legitimate question as to with the amount of evidence on this side and, and on the side that says vaccines are safe, generally people are, are, are being you know saved generally because of vaccines and they're dying in a greater numbers that are unvaccinated. Why are you still choosing to not get vaccinated? Right, and and that and that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. The studies from Kaiser Family Foundation show that there's a core of about eight percent of people who will refuse under any circumstances, and about ten percent of people who will get vaccinated only if mandated. So we may be able to get to. I mean, if we can get forget those seventeen percent and get the eighty-three percent, we may get to herd immunity. And so I, I, we're focusing on that. Um, it, it's it's a hard question to answer. I, I, again, psychological and not scientific. I think some of it may be, I, I have a rebellious spirit. I'm not going to do, I'm just not going to do what other what people recommend. Um, I think that they may not, may not be taking COVID uh, seriously. I just, honestly, I just don't get it. Uh, there is a question that, in the chat box, after having received a coronavirus, after having had COVID, still having symptoms when is it okay to get vaccinated the general rule and this is my rule this is not necessarily recommended by the manufacturers you wait 60 days from the uh from the time of you getting infection uh to get vaccinated i would say if you're still having symptoms i would probably hope if you're not that far out i would i theoretically would wait 60 days from the resolution of my symptoms to get to get vaccinated uh so that that's my answer to that uh i ellis i don't no. When you, when you ask people, they I get the main thing I get right now is I'm protecting myself with lifestyle and waiting and seeing. And then I don't trust the government. There's a microchip in there. It affects my uh, fertility. Um, you know, they don't know the long term effects. But with vaccines, generally speaking, the side effects you see are early on. You don't tend to see side effects two and three years down the line. You see the side effects in the first uh, set of 42 days, which is six weeks, and then maybe even going out as far as six months. We have studies going out as six months and even farther where we're not seeing any serious consequences. I'd like to just make one final statement. I'm not really, I'm not really uh, talking down to people who make this decision because I'm not asking you to understand the science. What I'm asking you is to make the sacrifice for yourself and for your family and for your friends by getting vaccinated and keeping them out of danger. Uh, I think that that's more a moral issue than it is an intellectual issue. I don't understand where all these scientists came from when you couldn't pass science in high school. I don't know where that, that came through. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily the issue. I think the issue is this, is that we do know that vaccines work. We do know that vaccines protect your family, your children, your friends. And if you're not willing to make that sacrifice, I think that's a whole different kind of decision. So thank you, Dr. Brooks. Uh, we're going to stay on this. Uh, uh, obviously, this is not a settled question, but I do appreciate your joining us. And uh, we'll be talking in just a few minutes uh, with Dr. Um, DeWan Lankford. Uh, but before we do that, we have some other things to discuss. Uh, and you're welcome to stay around with us. Uh, we have this discussion. One of the things that I've looked at, you know, I'm working with BlackDoctor.org to put together a newsletter for doctors. And one of the things that I'm seeing in all of the articles and all the journals that I've been researching is it doesn't matter what the disease is. Most of the articles that involve African-Americans are how they do worse with everything 
than uh, any science that applies to them. Whether you're talking about cancer or diabetes, heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, all the, or prostate cancer, all the articles in the journals on how much worse black people do. There was a recent article released last week from the American Cancer Society, and it showed that black people, that the death rates for cancer were going down by 2%, except for black people. I, mean, I looked at some issues that had to do with, uh, with uh, chronic kidney disease or with diabetes or prediabetes. And it seems that, especially for African-American men, are most at risk for all these diseases. And everybody's wondering why. And I'm wondering why. And I want to know what, what you think, Dr. Brooks, and what do you think? Tell us from your vast experience of talking to all these experts. Why is it, well, let me just say this. There are some environmental issues, no question. There are some genetic issues, no question. But there are some issues that are not easy to explain that have nothing to do with genetics and have nothing to do with the environment and have everything to do with the system. So you mean, why are we, why are we in fact at higher rates of everything bad and lower rates of everything good? Yes. So the, the, the reason is primarily, as you stated, the system, quote unquote. And there are a couple of things. Number one, so racism, let's just put it out there, okay? So racism causes you to have a chronic low level of stress, which increases right. uh, hormonal secretions of uh, cortisol and adrenaline, which leads to uh, a higher uh, allostatic or standard baseline blood pressure. Higher right. baseline blood pressure messes up everything. Other thing, and more, I think, that gets close to what you're talking about, because that's even scientific, is the way the system works. I mean, there are clear studies that show African-Americans are less likely to get pain medications. They're less likely to get procedures that go with uh, coronary artery disease. They're going to be sitting home with aspirin versus going to the cath lab and getting a coronary artery stents or, or bypass surgery. We are just, our Black Lives Matter, it, it, that is so, people don't really realize how important that is. We, they're talking about with the police and social injustice. But in, in the ER, in the doctor's office, uh, in the hospitals, we don't get the same care. So black men are not necessarily getting their PSA checked as often. Black men are not getting that DRE, that digital rectal exam as often. They're not getting that uh, low-level CT scan, scanning for uh, lung cancer. If you pick it up, you can uh, be cured. Uh, black women are get, not getting their mammograms as often. Um, so, and then you get the social determinants of health. I can't get to the doctor because I got to work. I don't have a regular doctor. All of these things play into us having higher rates of everything bad and lower rates of everything good. So the answer is to focus on issues other than kind of what you're saying, Dr. Lenora Mike, the things that we often focus on. You know, if you're, if you're an African-American man, a black man, what are the five things that you need to know about yourself? from a medical perspective, to assure that you're as healthy as you can be uh, in in uh, in um, the system. What are the five things? I mean, like blood pressure, yeah. obviously. Right. Uh, can, I, can I take a stab at that? Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask all that. I mean, don't <laughs> I, mean, I want other people's Come five. to us, Come right. to us. Okay, so, so this, this is what I, I'm thinking. All right, uh, blood pressure, uh, your cholesterol, uh, your PSA, uh, so those th those are three. Um, I would say you should know your blood sugar, but if you're not diabetic, it might not be an issue. So no, you, should know your, you should know your hemoglobin A1C. Okay, hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1C. That's and that's that, but Alice is also because they're like. I don't know what my A1C is right now, but I know I'm not diabetic or pre-diabetic. So but, you know, it's funny, though, because I wouldn't have answered that question that way, although else is fun, because I would have said, first of all, have a good relationship with your, have a primary care physician and have a good relationship with them. I say, number two, if you're married to have a girlfriend, have your woman book all your appointments, because if you, if you, if they leave it up to you, you'll never go. And I say, number three, is he the advice of healthcare professionals. And simply, I was thinking, take your medicine. I'm, I'm sure, anecdotally not only, that there are a whole lot of black men out there that have hypertension that have been prescribed uh, antihypertensive that are not taking them. Thing, same thing with your statins, same thing with your uh, anti-diabetic medications. So I think that it gets kind of around to those things. And what you're saying, Alice, those are the things that would be taken care of if they did the things that, that I'm well, talking about. 
But, but there are some numbers that you need to know. You've okay. got most amellus, blood pressure, cholesterol, hemoglobin A1C. You need to know that. You need to know what your colon, colonoscopy, uh, you know, um, uh, situation is. That is right. Uh, and, and there's one I'm kind of missing, but but those are the ones. Uh, PSA. That, for, PSA. For PSA. Yeah, those, those are the big five. Right. I mean, for, for women, it's, it's still hypertension. It's still cholesterol. It's still hemoglobin A1C. It's your mammogram results. That's that's another thing, uh, and I'm thinking I'm trying to maybe cervical about, cancer screenings and your cervical cancer screenings. Absolutely. But but if if you look at the statistics that we look at, uh, you know it doesn't matter whether you carry a briefcase or whether you wear a tie or whether they call you uh, whether you're the CEO, CFO, CYO, BBO. It doesn't matter because if you're black then your death rates are much higher than whites and your death rates are almost the same as brothers who are working in construction and other places. So we're all unified in that way. But if you know those several numbers, then I think that you can probably, um, you know, get by uh, and stay relatively healthy. I think that we at the black, I, I, go ahead. I think that, I think the piece that um, as a layman on, on this panel, one of the things that it took a while for me to sink in about my own medical history is how connected all of these things are. And so I did a show a few weeks ago about blood pressure and didn't realize how connected blood pressure was to strokes and other illnesses in the body. I thought a stroke was separate from the blood pressure. But when you see that just something as simple as having your blood pressure under control can have a greater effect on all of these other conditions within your body. Having your 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 cholesterol under control has a greater impact on all of those other conditions. And so it really is it really is all connected. We're talking we're going to be doing in a few weeks uh, a series on on liver disease and and not just and when you hear liver disease we just think about cirrhosis which is connected to alcohol, but there's a whole host of other liver diseases that again affect black people at a higher, at a higher rate. Uh, it affect black people at a higher rate that really has a, a, a greater effect and we know how important the liver is in our overall body functioning. So I think in a general sense, well, and, and when we talked to, to Dr. Glenda when she's coming on the show, and I think we need to stress this point more in terms of, uh, so Dr. Brooks, I'm gonna add a caveat to what you said about having a, a, a listening to your healthcare provider. Also understanding being your own best health advocate and yeah. knowing the questions that you have to ask to go before you go in and listening and being able to interpret what your medical provider is telling you. When he gives you a number, you should be able to, if your doctor gives you your PSA number, you should be able to know immediately whether that number is good or bad without him having to tell you. And that's just about being your own best health advocate and learning from African American Wellness Project, blackdoctor.org, coming, watching these programs, going to reading articles and understanding those numbers. So when they, when they give you a report after you do your physical, you can be like, oh, I need to watch this. Oh, I need to do it better on that. And then that way right. you could be a better, you'd be more adherent because now you're more invested into your, your medical. Well, practice. and you know what I would add to that also, which I think is a part of it. So I would even go more general, like take your health status seriously. Because if I were asking, if I if I told you that I could I could find a way to get you a hundred thousand dollars, but you go need to go on the internet to find out how to do it, I give you some some non-specific information. You need the specifics, then you'd be on the internet all day trying to get to that half a million. So if you were like, you know, I know the doc said I have borderline hypertension. What does borderline mean? And then go look it up. So in other words, have an interest in your numbers, care about it. Because I think that men, probably men, period. That's why I said the women, they don't, the women, well, every year, I don't care what you say. Uh, we tend to think that, you know, we're impervious, that, that, we, that we are going to be well. Uh, I, part of macho is I can do anything. I can be anything. So I really believe that if, we, if you start taking your health status seriously, you'll start to do those things that you said. And I do agree with that. Quite, I went, my doctor, I went to my doctor and, um, I got my labs back and my cholesterol was elevated. I never heard from my doctor. So mm. I had, I have to go forward and, and get you. I should have called him and followed up. You know, my, my position is, okay, I'm, the, I'm, I'm going on my own way and talk to my own doctor, people I know. And, you know, it's, and it's bad. I mean, it's bad and it's really bad in that system. I say that if I'm in a strange city, uh, you know, like Florida or where you are or in Los Angeles, and I get some chest pain or, Something happened. I'm gonna try to get in a suit and get me a briefcase before I go to the emergency room. I'm not going in my pajamas. Don't go to the bed. Here's a tip: 
don't go to the don't go to the emergency room in your pajamas unless you just can't help it, because you'll get pajama type medical care if you're in your pajamas. Now, if you put on a suit and brief, get take a briefcase down there and maybe try to look important, uh, you know, uh, talk about the mayor, you know, your friend or something like that, you might get some attention. But do not. Right. This is the tip. It's not in the books. It's not anywhere, but do not go to the emergency room in your briefcase. In your, yeah, in that's your what you said. That's whenever, you get pajama type medical care. Whenever I'm seeking medical care, even my own doctors, I ensure that I am well dressed. And that's the truth. Because what you said is absolutely true. What people may forget is doctors and the healthcare system are nothing but a bunch of trained individuals. And so people are human. People look at you and you come in there with a suit and a tie and talking about, you know, you, you, you know, the mayor. Yeah. You walk in there again with your house. This is what my people, people walk around with house shoes. And I look at them. I know they got, you know, in America, the poor people are obese with cell phones and gold jewelry and fancy shoes. So I know I don't know how poor you are, but I know you got a pair of shoes at home. So don't come into me wearing your house shoes. Don't go to the ER wearing your house shoes because you will get disrespected. So I might, I, I think that that is, people should not laugh at that. That's real. It, it is real. It, it's a part of, a, and from a psychological standpoint, it's called a nonverbal communication, right? So you're sending signals both verbally, what you say, and you're also sending signals by what you do physically and how you dress your appearance. And so a lot of times, some people take offense about that because they say, I'm an, I'm an adult. I can wear what I want to wear. It shouldn't matter what I wear. But again, we are always communicating. Whether we're not, whether we're not saying, we're not saying a word, we're still communicating. And wearing house shoes, wearing bonnets, wearing, uh, pajamas, as Dr. Lenore suggested, is sending the message to that doctor that you're not as invested into your medical care as you should be. And and whether that, that could be completely wrong, that could be a completely wrong assessment. However, that's the message that's being sent. And so that's the message that they're typically going to receive. And so therefore, they're like, I'm not going to spend as much time with this patient because I only have a limited amount of time. And this patient is not as invested as somebody that may have come in with a button down shirt on, with a tie, carrying the briefcase, doing all the things that Dr. Lenore said, because they, that patient appears to be more invested in their medical uh, health in, in terms of their long-term health. And so therefore I'm going to give them the time and attention that their nonverbal communication is sending to me. Yeah. My grandmother used to say there is what is, and here's what ought to be. And you ought to get the same level of treatment. That's something that we keep talking about every single week, and that's unconscious bias. And that means that the system looks at you as an African-American very differently. Uh, I can remember not too long ago, I went to, now this, this is, I went to, to Nordstrom's Rack. Now, you're in Nordstrom's Rack. That's a certain, there's a certain level of, of, of appreciation you have for low-income something. There was some guy that followed me around Nordstrom. Every rack I went into, he went into. I went way over to look at, look at some shoes. Way and he followed me over there. So finally, I looked at him and said, "Man, you know, uh, you everywhere I am, you are." He said, "Oh, oh you know, just coincidence." That's just. I said, "No, this is not coincidence. There's nothing coincidental about this." I was in. Uh, I was in in the the uh, Safeway Superstore. Uh, and there's this gentleman who came in with a very distinguished looking Chinese gentleman pushing a rack around. I went from oranges to liquor to uh, uh, Cheerios to, to the bread. And he followed me everywhere I was, he was. So I said, man, I said, you know, it certainly is, co I was loud too. It certainly is coincidental that you're following me around in all these various places. Do we have the same shopping list? And if he just kind of said, and he disappeared and went over to some other area. So you really have to recognize that unconscious bias is a real problem. We'll talk about that in subsequent weeks. But now, finally, finally, the man of the hour uh, has joined us. Uh, I assume there was some kind of a urologic emergency that prevented Dr. Lankford from joining us, but uh, we're glad to have it. Uh, Dr. DeWan Lankford. We're about, we're about to make a, 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 I was about to say a hard turn, but I think that that's gonna be a, uh, what we're talking about is not not so hard, but what we're talking about, we're going to take a sharp turn oh. from, our, from our discussion. Uh, 
from our discussion and we're going to talk about something that's uncomfortable for most men to discuss and that is erectile dysfunction so welcome dr langford uh you know we understand that your schedule is as tight as it is so uh thank you for, for giving us the time this evening all right well let me introduce dr dewan langford dr langford is a urologist in the uh san francisco bay area he's a graduate of Marion medical college uh, and he interned at the University of Cal Southern California, did his urology um, somewhere uh, in New York, I think, and did a fellowship uh, in New York. And New York and Medical College. Where, where? New York Medical College. It's in Westchester. Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny how, you know, when you go to medical school, you always mention the last place you went. Never the first <laughs> but we're glad that you are glad that you joined us. Uh, and we're going to talk to you about erectile dysfunction. Uh, it's a, something that uh, that most men don't want to talk about, maybe women as well. We're going to ask you about that. And we have a series of questions to ask, and we hope the audience has some questions to ask as well. So why don't we start our interview with um, uh, uh, you defining erectile dysfunction uh, for us. Sure, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, uh, it can get a little hectic on that, uh, on that 880 freeway, uh, that corridor. <laughs> Anyway, um, you know, erectile dysfunction, basically, I think the best way to describe erectile dysfunction um, for those that are struggling with uh, this issue or this disease is, is the inability to get an erection that's satisfactory for that individual. Uh, and that's, again, the ability, the inability, not being able to get a satisfactory erection so that they can have a pleasurable experience during sexual intercourse. And so a lot of times, you know, men will describe their symptoms of being, you know, I don't get the erection that I want to get, you know, and that can be erectile dysfunction. Also, it can be the inability at all to get an erection. Okay. Now, how common is it? I mean, uh, obviously, uh, I'm not talking about the occasional failure, you know, where uh, you have a problem. Um, but uh, how common, how, how often do you see that? You know, there's a large study done in Massachusetts. Um, few people uh, quote it because it's rather, you know, it was in a subselect population, mostly all white males, mostly in the Northeast. But they found 40% of people are affected by erectile dysfunction at the age of 40, 50 at 50, 60 at 60. Um, what we can say, we can't sort of extrapolate, we can't say that's true for the whole country, for every individual population group. But I think what we can say, Dr. Lenore, is that it's very common. Um, you know, odds are, if you're talking to, you know, 10 people, you know, up to 30 to 40% of those people are going to say they had a problem with erections at some point in time. Now, we're not talking about people who had I mean, urologic surgery or, or anything else, but, uh, but how, do, how do most cases of erectile dysfunction start? Yeah, you know, uh, most of the time, uh, you know, a gentleman is trying to uh, enjoy himself and trying to have sexual intercourse, and he can't, he can't, he can't uh, get an erection. You know, and it happens a lot of times sort of in the most worst of times, you know. And so if that happens once, they may, you know, chalk it up to, hey, maybe I was uh, drinking that night or maybe, um, you know, maybe it was a fluke. If it happens two times. They're coming to the urologist. They're, coming, they're going to their doctor immediately as fast as possible. So most erections sort of start with, the inability, you know, having the problem with having erections when they're trying to have sexual intercourse or trying to have a sexual experience. But, you know, that, that then creates a sense of anxiety. So does that mean that most of these cases are anxiety only? Or, or is it, uh, uh, how can you tell when you're, when you really got a problem as opposed to uh, when you're just anxious about uh, being able to produce? No, that's a, no, that's, that's a good question. I think so I tell people this, I say that erectile dysfunction is 75% mental, 25% physical. Um, there are physical issues that cause erectile dysfunction, i.e. vascular problems, uh, blood pressure problems, you know, 
uh, diabetes problems, okay? Um, also, if you've had previous surgeries in the pelvis, if you had a trauma in the pelvis, and if you had prostate cancer um, or cancers in that area, rectal cancer can also contribute to erectile dysfunction. Also, injuries to the spinal cord as well. And if you have if you have anxiety, you know, because a lot of the erections themselves can come from sort of, you know, uh, having anxiety and not being uh, all together there. Um, all those can contribute to erectile dysfunction, I think. And you kind of every time you talk to an individual, you kind of got to get a history, see what they're dealing with, seeing if, if it's an anxious time or see if there's something more telling in their history that points to a, a physical or, or, or an organic cause. Now, what do you tell your patients who, uh, you, are, you, you see, this is their first or second episode, uh, they're a little anxious, uh, and then, but if you leave that cycle going, it just kind of escalates to something much more serious. How can you break that cycle of anxiety? What are some of the things that you recommend before we start to talk about the more serious cases on, uh, and the treatment of those cases. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of times as, as doctors, I think we have to think outside of the box. We have to look um, at a holistic approach to what causes disease. And so a lot of times the anxiety has to do with job, you know, job loss, or especially during this COVID crisis. Um, and we're going to talk about COVID, you know, how COVID can be related to erectile dysfunction as well later on. But I think that, you know, it's important just to get uh, just to get an assessment of where you're at. Um, where are you at right now with your life? You know, how's life going? You know, and so I sort of use that uh, to, to steer me towards, you know, some of their more stressful issues. And then we talk about stress alleviation. I mean, I think that one of the major uh, recommendations that I give to patients is exercise. Exercise probably is the most important form of stress relief. Um, and then also, it, it can help you on the back end by improving your overall health, improving your, 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 your circulation. And that's one thing that's critical with erectile dysfunction, I think, that every man needs to know. Um, I say that the penis is the window into the heart. It's the window into the brain. <laughs> Wait a minute. I've heard, I've heard a lot of expressions. But is this is this something that you that you you may get something you made up? No, no. This, this is, I didn't say the penis was the way to the heart. <laughs> I said the penis is the window into the heart or into your cardiac uh, health. Uh, if you're having erectile dysfunction that could be related to vascular issues, to, 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 to overall health. It could be showing us that you have uh, early heart disease. Could be showing us that you have vascular disease um, that also affects the brain, affects the rest of the body. Our special guest is Dr. Ward uh, uh, Langford. He is a urologist. We're talking about a rather sensitive subject, which is uh, erectile dysfunction. If you want to join us, get in the chat room. I uh, asked Dr. De 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 Dr. Langford a question. Uh, this is kind of a place where we, we encourage that. We have a question about high blood pressure causing uh, an issue with ejaculation. All right. Uh, high blood pressure. So a lot of the blood pressure medications regulate your blood pressure. What causes erections? Blood pressure. Um, it's different kinds of blood pressure. So there are certain vessels, blood vessels, that dilate to cause for the spongiest tissue that causes erections to fill. And so when you have a, a blood pressure medication that's lowering your blood pressure, that's lowering the ability to fill blood into your penis. Um, it's, the mechanism is a little bit more complicated than that, but to break it down, Low blood pressure or the blood pressure, that could be a side effect of your blood pressure medications. So that's important to review with your primary care doctor um, and let them, let them know, hey, listen, since we've started this new blood pressure medication, my erections aren't the same. And then they can either discuss that the, the dosage that they're giving you for that blood pressure medication and maybe change that, change to a new blood pressure medication, or go ahead and see your urologist and we can talk about ways to treat the actual erectile dysfunction. Yeah, I think that one of the statistics that always stands out to me when people talk about hypertension is that uh, one of the reasons men stop taking uh, medication for hypertension 
is because they do it does affect uh, erectile function. And so consequently, it is important that some of the newer medicines really have been designed so that uh, that, that, that doesn't that doesn't happen. And uh, when we talk about erectile dis true erectile dysfunction, uh, the first thing I think we talk about are the Viagra type drugs. Uh, I refer to them as the Viagra type drugs because Viagra got the most publicity. What what where do they uh, when you start talking about treatment of just the average person, the average man, not one who's got you know prostate cancer or uh, neurologic issues? Uh, where do these um, these medicines fit? So, you know, it's a stepwise fashion, the way we evaluate a patient, right? We're going to look at you and we're going to see your whole history, right? We're going to look at the outlook, okay? Are you, do you have anxiety? Anxiety plays a, a significant role, and we want to try to alleviate that anxiety and see if the erectile dysfunction gets better. Now, if you have physical issues like blood pressure issues, diabetes, we want to optimize those, all right? We also want you to exercise. If you're a little bit overweight, we would say, hey, listen, maybe you need to exercise, optimize your weight, and that will improve your erections. And if all of those things fail, then we start to talk about, okay, how do we treat these with medications? The first line in medication, we call these phosphodiesterase inhibitors. It's an enzyme that works at the penis level. And this enzyme is involved in helping the penis fill. Um, and so what we do is give a medication that blocks this enzyme, or it help it it interacts with this enzyme to allow for better feeling of your penis with blood, and so that's how these medications work. And that's the first line. That's the, the trial run, if you will. That's what we do off the bat. Um, and if those fail, then we go down the line to more invasive procedures or more invasive treatments. Uh, well, are any of these medicines better than any other? Like is uh, is Seattle's better than Viagra or Viagra better than some of the others? That's a good question. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask that question. You know, everybody. Oh, man, I want to get the Levitra. The Levitra's better than the uh, Stendra. The Stendra's better than the Viagra. And so the thing is, is they all act via the same mechanism, right? They all are pretty much involved with the same mechanism. But... Um, Sorry, trying to get my lighting a little bit better. But, uh, you know, they, every medication has a different formulary. And those formularies interact with each individual's body differently, you know. And so sometimes it's a little bit of a trial run. You know, we may try Viagra first, and maybe that works well. Or maybe that doesn't work so well. So then we say, you know what, let's go ahead and try the Cialis. The Cialis may, may work better. And maybe that doesn't work well. Then we go down the line. The problem is, is that a lot of these medications can be expensive. And sometimes I use that to judge, okay, listen, you know, we've already wasted money on Viagra. It's not working at all for you. Maybe we should step to the next, we should go to the next step. What is the next step? So, well, yeah, so we, do, we talk about the oral medications. And then we talk about, in, so along sort of parallel with oral medications, there's something called Muse, and that's a medication it gets injected into the urethra itself to cause an erection. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, well, how do we get that far? But go ahead, please. Yeah, so, so it's a little bit painful, um, but it directly interacts with the, the tissues through the urethra, it goes, it diffuses into the tissues that become erect in the penis. This can sometimes be a little bit painful in the urethra itself, but some people who don't want to do the pills or feel like the pills aren't working may want to try this because when I tell you about the next step, it may be a little bit too invasive for somebody. With, you know, and the next step is really injections with an injectable needle. Um, you would, well, how desperate do you have to be to, to take that step? I mean, well, what, I mean, and this is a serious question. Uh, obviously, this is not the easiest thing to do. But uh, what, what, in your in your experience, what uh, pushes man to, to to go this far? Well, I don't know if it's too far. I think I want to sleep. I, I don't think so. I think you know the thing is is uh, you know people inject for insulin every day, right? Uh, if you're a diabetic, you have to inject every single day for for uh, for your diabetes. 
Um, people inject uh, every single day uh, for uh, epinephrine pins if they have allergic reactions and things of that nature. So uh, injecting your penis prior to sexual intercourse is not too, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's too drastic, but then again, I'm a urologist. <laughs> I need to ask you some other questions if that's your answer to this one. But in any event, I, I can understand, I can say, but what, uh, is, it, is it just the, the, the um, is it the need to perform or is it the lost uh, sensations, the pleasure of it that, that, that pushes a person to go to the injection phase? I mean, not that I'm criticizing that, I'm not. I'm just trying to understand in your patient population, uh, yeah. what are the motivations for most of the men who want this type of treatment? So, so injections, usually we use those when the oral medications have failed. When the oral medications have failed, when they do not work, then we go to injections, okay? And there are some steps in between, like the injectables into the urethra itself. There's also a vacuum-assisted device. It's a vacuum device where you would constrict the blood flow from going outside of the penis with the ring-type uh, uh, mechanism. And you use a vacuum-assisted device that, that sort of evacuates uh, air to help the penis stay erect, okay? Those are sort of parallel with the medications because they're not invasive um, and they're not, a, they're, they're not a medication, but they are a little bit uh, quality of life uh, affectors. Yeah, that, that's the pump. The pump, the penile okay. pump. Well, you, you, you were very formal with it when you said the vacuum and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. It like, well, sounds well, like a pump. <laughs> so some people call the penile pump, they right. will call that the penile prosthesis, which is sort of the most invasive step in penile surgery. Um, and the, the penile prosthesis is a an insert. So first we start with the pills, okay? Then after the pills, penile uh Vacuum assisted device is what is the technical term for it, which is we wouldn't call that the pump, we call it more the vacuum. Right. Okay. Yeah. Then there's injections, right? We have the, the, the muse, which is the urethral injections right before that. That's kind of with the vacuum assisted device. Injections. And then after injections, the injections don't work, or some people feel like they're too painful to inject, we have the penile prosthesis. But let me say one more thing about the injections. And Dr. Lenore um, asked a question about the injections. What pushes someone to do injections? And I think the injections are usually used when the oral medications don't work. A lot of times when someone has prostate surgery, right? Prostate surgery, if the nerves have been damaged, maybe the medicines don't work as well. So the injections sometimes work a lot better because the medication is delivered directly to the penis, right? Versus having to go through your mouth, through your blood system, and then to the penis. Um, and so that's more a lot more or less when we do use injections. Um, and some people like to do the injections. They they find it you know you don't have to take a medication where you have some of the side effects. Uh, you know when you can take some of these Viagra type medications, we call them the phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Um, these medication can cause you to have blue halos. You can see see funny. Uh, you know, you may have some nasal congestion, uh, you know, um, and, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of our callers and our, and our viewers probably know what I'm talking about when they've taken some Viagra. I'm not going to say anybody on this phone call right now. You know, I know all of you don't need it. <laughs> I'd be ready to step up, you know, but uh, I don't need to get personal. Uh, one of the things before we go on to the ultimate involved uh, 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 issue is uh, how effective is marijuana uh, in patients who have um, erectile dysfunction? That's a good, good question. I never used it to treat people with erectile dysfunction, but I can say chronic use. Sometimes I see people having uh, difficulties obtaining erections if they're a chronic marijuana smoker, daily smoker. Um, there has been some data to show that it does increase estrogen levels. And sometimes there's breast tenderness associated with um, abuse of marijuana, um, THC. But overall, 
I find it a great uh, medication for anti-inflammatory and um, for anti-anxiety. Okay. But well, you, well, you don't think it? You don't think that would be that works in um, in uh, mild cases? Maybe even at the same level where some of the pills may work. Has that been your experience? I would say no. I would say in my experience, I have not. Um, there's two other treatments I should mention. Um, there's something called shockwave therapy. Mm. Um, a lot of people ask questions about the shockwave therapy. Um, I reviewed the American Urologic Association guidelines, and shockwave therapy should be viewed as something that's experimental at this at this at this stage now. Um, it is not something that's seen as a tried and true FDA approved. Uh, or I wouldn't mention the FDA, but I would say it's not seen as something that uh, in the pathway that we would use uh, definitively. It's something that if someone asked, um, they could go out and seek these therapies and treatments probably uh, safely, but they're seen as experimental. Also, uh, there is inter, there's inject, injections of uh, uh, plasma-rich uh, PRP, uh, injections, and this is something that can be injected into the uh, cavernosa of the penis directly. That is also seen as experimental as well. Let me ask you, uh, you know, we, uh, here in the Bay Area, we always hear, and maybe you hear it in Atlanta, other places, that there are these, these men's health clinics that guarantee 99% success in dealing with erectile dysfunction. Uh, how, how, in your experience, um, how successful are they? Uh, should they be avoided? Or are these fairly legitimate ways uh, to deal with this issue? So, I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm always weary of anybody guaranteeing anything. I think that um, there's nothing that's absolute. Uh, but I do, I do believe that some of our treatments are very uh, successful. So we were talking about the, the steps and treatments. We've talked about first starting with the oral medications and then going to intraurethral injections or uh, of MUSE or the vacuum assisted. And we talked about uh, the injections of, of the, the, the prostaglandin injections into the penis itself. And then last but not least is the penile prosthesis. The penile prosthesis is a insert of an inflatable uh, mechanism that helps you to obtain an erection uh, without having had, without being able to obtain it yourself. So basically, it's an inflatable prosthetic that's placed inside the penis, inside the body during surgery that you can then pump up via a pump that's in the testicle. That okay, when they do satisfaction surveys, that has been seen to have an 80 to 90 percent, even upwards of 90 percent success rate. So these men's clinics may be by default. Uh, quoting these these success rates from penile prosthesis uh, surveys, but I don't think that in general any men's clinic can give you a success rate of their treatments because I mean every every person is different and um, you know every treatment is, has a different success rate. I I, I got a question in, in terms of like I'm talking from more of a sociological society standpoint when you're talking about how. Um, black men are viewed in this country in terms of being, you know, kind of the, all the narratives that have been created around black men, especially in considering our sexuality. Um, does that, do you think that plays a role in terms of if we start having ED problems, that we're less likely to go see a urologist and more likely to maybe to go to those men clinics or go to buy something that's offline, like you see um, those those mail where you could just do a consultation online and get it sent to the mail versus going in and working with a, a healthcare professional like yourself? Yes, I 100% I agree. Societies uh, kind of, so culture plays a major part in what we call shared decision-making when deciding treatment options. Uh, if you look in the Latino, Chicano, Latino, or the Latinx community, you see that there is heightened awareness for sexual dysfunction. Many men will come in already asking for la bombita, which is the actual penile prosthesis pump that's placed inside to the in the body via surgery. Uh, whereas I would say some men come in and it's not something that's spoken about in their community very regularly 
openly. Um, I would say from my own personal experience with African-American men, I don't believe that these sexual issues are spoken of very regularly. However, I do have a slew of men who may tell their friend, hey, this is my good friend. I told him, I told him that I got it. It's working. I even have two patients who had children by the same woman and their friends, and they both talked with each other while going to a birthday party at the same house, and they both got penile prostheses because they both talked to each other. They both had a history of prostate cancer. Um, mm. So they both helped each other through their prostate cancer trip and journey, and they both helped each other obtain the penile prosthesis, and both are 99% satisfied. Yeah, how, how many of these do you do a year? I mean, it's like, is it like one a month or more yeah, than you know, I, I, I'm probably one of the busiest individuals here in the Bay Area. Um, you know, I did, you know, I, I, it's hard. Sometimes I don't like to remember but I can say that I do a significant amount of these. Good stuff. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a cop-out. That sounds like a cop-out. Yeah, I can neither confirm nor deny these numbers. <laughs> But I can say you're not putting names here. It's just bad. You know, one of the things that would be interesting because we're running out of time, unfortunately, is that next time we talk about this, you could bring some of these devices so we can actually see the device itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I would help demystify if that's the term I'm looking for. If you would demystify some of the issues around erectile dysfunction. I think it is a much more, uh, and we're not making light of it at all. I think. Right. Uh, well, we, we think it's much more uh, of a problem than we're willing to to admit in our um, in our um, culture. So, thank you, Doctor Langford, for taking the time to join us. And I know the people on eight eighty thank you for the other thirty minutes that you had, but uh, we appreciate. We're gonna, we gonna bring it back. We're gonna bring it back. Okay. I'm gonna show you guys some prosthesis. We could talk about the surgery. Right. Um, no, no, we we look forward. Well, I don't say look forward, but. Uh, um, you know, look, I don't know what we should say exactly, but no, we appreciate your taking the time. We know how important the problem this is, and uh, we appreciate the opportunity. To talk I got to one you. last question: Is it an early sign of prostate cancer? Is that a warning sign of uh, ED? Would that? Yeah. So, so erectile dysfunction is associated with prostate cancer. It's one of the quality of life concerns when someone has prostate cancer. Okay. So, that's one of the things we look at. Now, down the line. Treating ED is a strategy for treating people after they've recuperated from prostate cancer. Okay. So early penile rehabilitation with oral medications. Of course, if those don't work, we go to injections. And of course, if those don't work, I advocate for placing the penile prosthesis as soon as possible so you can return back to your normal life. Well, you know, one of the, one of the things you always talk about after surgery is, um, is you know, diet and exercise. I mean, are there certain exercises that you recommend after certain, you know, surgery um, yes. you know, like this? I have a pelvic floor rehabilitation regimen that I have all my patients do after pelvic surgery. Um, also, exercise and diet and losing weight is critical in optimizing your cardiovascular system. These things started immediately. Because the shorter amount of time that you you don't change from what you've done your whole life, the, the better you feel psychologically. We can get you moving and grooving again. Don't worry. Don't listen to these guys. I'm telling you, it's okay. We haven't said anything. What are we? You know, we don't, we're bringing this to the general public. I mean, they don't think that we're not advocates for this kind of thing, but you do seem a little enthusiastic. You can also, we haven't even talked about. Uh, penile enlargement surgery too. No, no, we. I don't think that's not on the. That's not on the agenda today. <laughs> <laughs> that's a new. That's new, some new techniques out there. We need to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Langford. Uh, put out the rails. Yeah, no, no, I think I think that that would be an interesting subject. But um, but thank you for joining us on today's edition. Uh, you're always welcome to uh, come and talk to us about urologic issues. I think this is an important issue. Thank Dr. Brooks always updating us on uh, the coronavirus and the COVID virus infections. Uh, but most of all, I'd like to thank a lot of people for joining us uh, on a regular basis here on the uh, Welcome Watch. We want you to talk to your friends about our program. Uh, you always uh, have an opportunity to come and ask questions. 
So I want you to remember that health is your biggest asset. We'll talk again next week. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Remember, listeners, Black Doctors Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the Ask American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctors Speak, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and at Black Docs Speak on Twitter. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.